We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Away we go, episode 143 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, September 13th, 2021, the day after the Washington football team began its 2021 regular season with a loss, a 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Ryan Fitzpatrick injured in the second quarter, could be out for a while, maybe the rest of the season. A very disappointing defensive performance in terms of the third down defense, which was abysmal. Way too many Chargers fans in attendance. A whole lot of blue was seen in the seats. Uh, Yeah, other than those things, how did week one go for your team? Uh, Jeez. Why is it that our team like never wins in week one games anymore? I know Washington won in week one last season, but Washington now is just two and six over its last eight week one games. That's it. Two and six. Six of the last eight Washington seasons have begun with a loss in week one. And no, a loss in week one does not doom you. A loss in week one does not ruin you. But, you know, you like to get off to a nice start. You like to get off to a start that makes you feel good, you know, that puts a little pep in your step when it comes to being a fan of your NFL team. You wait so long, so many months for the regular season to begin and then for it to begin with a thud and for this to happen basically on a yearly basis or so it seems for us as Washington fans is particularly painful. Your two Washington week one wins over the last eight seasons now, 24-6, 
at the Arizona Cardinals in week one of the 2018 season and 27-17 over the Philadelphia Eagles at FedEx Field in week one of, yes, the 2020 season. But otherwise, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2019, and now 2021, each season offering a week one loss for our team, the team currently known as the Washington football team. Well, my breakdown of the game will begin next segment with the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the game. I have thoughts on the game beyond the front five as well. I will talk college football, Maryland, Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Navy, which stunningly fired its offensive coordinator on Saturday evening. I will talk Nationals off them losing two or three at the Pittsburgh Pirates over the weekend. We did get a good start from Patrick Corbin on Sunday afternoon, but we also got another bad start by Josiah Gray on Saturday night, and Juan Soto is just killing it as the season goes on. Uh, I will talk Orioles as well, of them giving up 44 runs over three games in two days. Doubleheader on Saturday and a game on Sunday. The O's lost three or four games to the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. But yes, the O's allowed 44 runs over the final three games in the series. What was worse over the weekend? The Orioles' run prevention or Washington's third down defense? I don't know. I'll let you figure that out. Uh, And yes, I will have some scheduled fun with the Brandon Hyde-Robbie Ray incident from Friday night. Uh, If you don't know about that, oh, uh, wait till you hear about that. Uh, A friendly reminder, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Doing so costs you nothing. We are with you every weekday. New episode is out each weekday, Monday through Friday. This is not a once a week endeavor, twice a week endeavor, thrice a week endeavor. No, this is every weekday, Monday through Friday. New episode out by 5 a.m. We talk a ton of Washington football team on every show. So if you don't already subscribe, please consider subscribing. Also, if you haven't yet given the podcast a five-star rating and written like a one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast, please consider doing those things. Uh, Those things don't cost you anything. Take like 30 seconds and help us out quite a bit. And I thank you for doing those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback, as you might expect, from what happened with the WFT against the LAC at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Email from Rob. Is it time to talk about draft position? Jeez, Rob. Uh, continues, Rob. I took my boys to the game. Didn't get a flyover from the Air Force, which I love. I guess the Taliban wouldn't let us borrow one of our old planes. Jeez. Uh, also, they started chanting, let's go Redskins. It took me two minutes to catch on. They tried to get hail to the Redskins going, but that was hard to get everyone in sync. Yeah, it was hard to get a lot of things in sync on Sunday at FedEx Field. You're going to hear Ron Rivera talk about that with the defense coming up in the front five. Email from Mike P. Is Thursday's game a must win now? In a way, I don't think it is because we have 16 games left. We can make adjustments and improve, but I do see why it could be because there has to be a tone-setting game, an identity game. We lose to the Giants on Thursday. We start looking at the team a little different. These two games are and were winnable games for this team, mainly from our defense, which got manhandled, it seemed, at every position 
by the Chargers. Wow. So Rob is already talking draft position. Mike P is pondering whether Thursday's game is a must-win game, a week two game, talking, of course, about game number two for Washington in the 2021 regular season, the Washington football team versus the New York Giants at FedEx Field this Thursday night at 820. Well, you know what, Mike? If we're going to call it a must-win game, we have to give it a special label, and that would be a code red game. That's critical. It's uh, code red for us. Yes, the very famous declaration by Jay Gruden in October 2015. Washington falls to 2-4 and four with a 34-20 loss at the New York Jets. Jay is perhaps facing a win or get fired proposition. And so Jay declares the next game a home game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as a code red. And what ended up happening? The greatest comeback win in Washington history, 31-30, the final over the Buccaneers at FedEx Field. And not just the famous Code Red game, but the famous You Like That game. Do we need to put that kind of pressure, that kind of impetus on this Week 2 game for Washington against the Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football? Well, we have a few days to figure that out. If you need to figure out who you need to sell your home, always know that John Granlund of Real Broker is there for you. It's very simple. Nobody will do a better job of selling your home. So if you need to sell your home, if you want to sell your home, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact John Granlin and see what he can do for you because John Granlin offers something that is groundbreaking, commission flex. The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. Don't just accept some exorbitant flat commission rate from some real estate agent who's probably not going to even do a very good job for you. John Granlin is outstanding at what he does, and John Granlin is changing the game with commission flex. Commission flex. Yes, not unlike Ron Rivera's favorite thing, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Commission flex is simple, flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. Don't accept that. John Grandlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, zero commission. You heard that right. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. John Grandlin is a great guy, easygoing, no pressure, big Washington football team fan. I know that he's not happy uh, on this Monday, but see what John G can do for you. Call John G now. It's 703 703- 537-6747. When you talk to John Granlin, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John G about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. 
That phone number again, 703-537-6747. You can also check him out online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. But boy, Ron, do we have a lot to talk about with your team. All right, let's get right into it. The front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's regular season opening 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Takeaway number one, here we go again with another season in which we have multiple starting quarterbacks for Washington. Here we go again. Why is it that we can't have nice things at quarterback with our NFL team? Why is it that we have to go through this every year? What did we do to deserve this? I really would like to have that question answered. Why is it that every season, every season now, there is quarterback instability with this team, either due to injury or ineffectiveness? Since Kirk Cousins left in the 2018 offseason via free agency, Every Washington season has been filled with multiple quarterbacks. Is this the curse of Kirk Cousins? Is there a curse of Kirk Cousins? I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, hello, Kirk. You know, Kirk started every game for Washington from 2015 through 2017. Never got enough credit for his durability. Washington in 2018 started four different quarterbacks, Alex Smith, Colt McCoy, Mark Sanchez, and Josh Johnson. Washington in 2019 started three different quarterbacks, Case Keenum, Colt McCoy, and Dwayne Haskins. Washington in 2020 started four different quarterbacks, if you count the postseason, Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, Alex Smith, and Taylor Heineke. And now Washington in 2021 already is poised to start two different quarterbacks over the team's first two games, Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke. Ryan Fitzpatrick, in his regular season debut for Washington, goes 3-6 for 13 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions, and then gets knocked out of the game via injury in the second quarter. He, on the first snap of Washington's fourth offensive drive, got smashed by Chargers edge rusher Uchenna Nuosu, who scorched Charles Leno Jr. on what was officially a first and 10 shotgun incompletion intended for J.D. McKissick. Washington announced Fitzpatrick is having a right hip injury. He did not return to the game. Ron Rivera, during his postgame press conference, said that the team was to know more about Fitzpatrick's status on Monday. But NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com tweeted the following on Sunday evening, quote, Washington QB Ryan Fitzpatrick is believed to have suffered a hip subluxation and he'll have an MRI tomorrow to determine if that's the case and how much damage it caused. Sources say the hope is nothing was broken, a serious injury, but they'll learn how serious tomorrow, end quote. Well, tomorrow now is today, i.e. Monday. Uh, As you likely know, Washington has a game in just three days now, home to the New York Giants on Thursday night football at 820. It seemingly would be a miracle 
if Fitzpatrick started that game or any game soon, if in fact this is a serious injury. We obviously hope for the best. Perhaps the best will be what ends up playing out. But you tell me, how much faith do you have given our recent history at the quarterback position? And so off all of the offseason conversation about Ryan Fitzpatrick, right? How many Ryan Fitzpatrick segments did I do on this podcast? over the last six months or so, right? What is Ryan Fitzpatrick? What isn't Ryan Fitzpatrick? What has Ryan Fitzpatrick been recently? You know, his three best seasons have been his last three seasons. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that notable? Doesn't that offer reason for optimism for Ryan Fitzpatrick as a Washington quarterback? How he plays the position, he plays it in a manner in which so few quarterbacks in recent Washington history have played the position. And now it's possible his season already is over. Like, what are we talking about here? Or at the very least, his season is being cut short. It drives you nuts, man. You know, we'll see what the news ends up being. Again, we obviously hope for the best, and you feel for Fitzpatrick. You do. But my goodness, will there ever be any luck for us as Washington football team fans at the quarterback position one game into the season? Heck, one half into the season. In the second quarter, this guy suffers this injury, which may end up costing him the rest of the season. Again, is this a curse of Kirk Cousins? I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, hello, Kirk. I want to know, Kirky, did you curse us when you left us in that 2018 offseason? I tell you, if only there was a way to take legal action against whoever or whatever is behind this constant instability for Washington at quarterback. Well, we know that bad things happen, and I want to tell you about a new sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast, a law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged. Paulson and NACE. Paulson and NACE handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and NACE are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and NACE is a family law firm. The NACEs are DMV through and through. Big Washington football team fans. Paulson and NACE has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Barry Nace and Chris Nace are both past presidents of the D.C. trial lawyers. Look, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people and smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wrong, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're not obligated to anything. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-851-9899. That's 202-851-9899. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sends you. Make sure that you say, hey, I heard about you guys on the Al Galdi podcast. Here's what I got going on and see what Paulson and Nace has to say. Schedule a no obligation appointment by calling 202-851-9899. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. It's the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's regular season opening 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Takeaway number two, Taylor Heineke played well again. You can follow me on Twitter at Al Galdi. I tweeted the following as part of a tweet 
after the game. Taylor Heineke looked good again. All Heineke does is make plays every time he plays. Taylor Heineke was Washington's QB2, came into the game on that Washington fourth offensive drive of Ryan Fitzpatrick suffering the right hip injury. The drive did result in a second quarter three and doubt. Heineke did not look good uh, on that drive. 0 for 2 over the final two snaps of the drive. He was way off on his throws. But Heineke ended up being quite good the rest of the game. I don't want to overstate what he did, but I thought all things considered, Taylor Heineke again looked good. He finished 11 of 15 for 122 yards. That's 8.13 yards per pass attempt. He had a touchdown pass. He had no interceptions. He took no sacks. He had three carries for 17 yards. Washington's fifth offensive drive, a five-play, 45-yard drive, resulted in Dustin Hopkins' 48-yard field goal on the final snap of the second quarter to cut Washington's deficit to 13-9. Now, no doubt, a big moment on this drive was the second snap of the drive. Edge rusher Joey Bosa committing that moronic 15-yard roughing the passer penalty. But also on this drive, third snap, Taylor Heineke off running up the A-gap and to his left, a first and 10, 12-yard shotgun completion to Logan Thomas. Next snap, Taylor Heineke, first and 10, seven-yard shotgun completion to Logan Thomas. Fifth snap, Taylor Heineke, second and three, three three-yard shotgun scramble out of bounds to stop the clock with five seconds left in the second quarter and set up the 48-yard field goal for Dustin Hopkins. Washington's sixth offensive drive, the opening drive of the second half, was an eight-play, 81-yard drive. Resulted in the Taylor Heineke, third quarter, first and 10, 11-yard shotgun play-action touchdown pass to Logan Thomas. Ensuing extra point gave Washington a 16-13 lead. First snap of the drive. Heineke, first and 10, five-yard under center play-action scramble. Second snap of the drive, Heineke, second and five, 11-yard shotgun play-action completion to Antonio Gibson, who did a nice job of breaking through an attempted tackle by the Chargers linebacker, Kazir White. But also on the play, Heineke making the completion despite taking a shot from edge rusher Jerry Tillery. Fourth snap of the drive, Heineke, second and four, nine-yard shotgun completion to Terry McLaurin on a screen. Seventh snap of the drive, and the snap right before the touchdown, Taylor Heineke, a third and six, 34-yard shotgun completion to Terry McLaurin, who made a spectacular catch on which he adjusted his body while falling backwards. McLaurin making the catch despite an illegal contact penalty by corner Michael Davis. No doubt, Terry gets a ton of credit for that play, but Heineke got the football to Terry, gave his playmaker a chance, and the playmaker made that play. Washington's seventh offensive drive resulted in Dustin Hopkins' early fourth quarter missed 51-yard field goal attempt that was wide left. Second snap of the drive, Heineke, third quarter, second and four, 17-yard shotgun play action completion to Cam Sims despite taking a shot from Joey Bosa. Tenth snap of the drive, Heineke, a late third quarter, first and 20, 17-yard shotgun completion to Terry McLaurin on a shovel pass off scrambling up the A-gap. That was such a great play by Taylor Heineke, right? Innovative, trying to figure something out. He figures something out and makes a 17-yard completion out of that play. Awesome job by Taylor Heineke. Ninth offensive drive of the game for Washington. This is the one that resulted in that very interesting decision to punt 
in the fourth quarter. Uh, you did get another key Joey Bosa penalty on this drive. Third snap, Bosa, third and four, 15-yard roughing the passer penalty on a Taylor Heineke incompletion, but also on the drive, 10th snap, Heineke, a third and 16, nine-yard shotgun scramble. If, in fact, it is that Ryan Fitzpatrick is out for a while or even the rest of the season, I don't think that Washington is ruined. And a big reason for that is Taylor Heineke. Now, I'm not going to be at all happy if Ryan Fitzpatrick is out for a substantial period of time to say nothing of being out for the rest of the season. But as I have said for months, Taylor Heineke to me is more viable as a QB1 option than a lot of people like to give him credit for. I find it very odd how so many fans and especially so many people in the media refuse to even consider the idea that Taylor Heineke can be the QB1. All he ever does when he plays is look good. That's all he ever does. And he did it again on Sunday afternoon. Takeaway number three, Washington's defense was atrocious on third downs. Terrible, brutal, awful, wretched, embarrassing, inept. Pick whatever word or phrase you want. Washington's third down defense against the Chargers was as former Washington head coach Steve Spurrier once said, Not very good. No, no, it was not. Washington allowed the Chargers to go 14 for 18 on third downs prior to Justin Herbert's kneel down on a third and goal at the nine on the final snap of the game. Let me repeat that 14 for 18. This is the kind of thing that if it happened with Joe Barry as Washington defensive coordinator or Greg Minuski as Washington defensive coordinator, you would have people calling for those guys to be fired, okay? Now, Jack Del Rio gets a benefit of the doubt that those guys did not. Ron Rivera gets a benefit of the doubt that other Washington head coaches have not received. But the truth is, 14 for 18 by an opposing team on third downs is as bad as anything we have seen over the years with all of these awful Washington third down defenses. And there have been many awful Washington third down defenses in recent years. The 2016 Washington defense under Joe Barry was horrendous on third downs. The 2019 Washington defense under Greg Minuski was horrendous on third downs. And Washington on Sunday afternoon in this season opening loss to the Chargers at FedEx Field was, yes, horrendous on third downs. This defense, which was so much better last season, This defense, which has been talked up so much, was a special kind of awful on third downs on Sunday afternoon. Washington allowed Justin Herbert on third downs to go 13 of 16 for 160 yards, 11 first downs, and a touchdown. And Washington's defense being so bad on third downs played a big role in Washington getting brutalized in the time of possession battle. Washington lost the time of possession battle by 12 minutes, six seconds. I mean, part of Washington not doing more on offense was Washington not having the ball on offense for way too much of this game. And so that brings us to this. Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on Sunday, okay? Ron, during the presser, got asked what frustrated him the most from the game. 
Take a listen to what he says. You're going to hear him make mention of the offense, but you're also going to hear him say something about why Washington had issues on defense. Here you go. The little details, um, you know, and, and again, it, 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 the, the ugly head of not doing your job, not doing your responsibility, I should say. You know, you're responsible for something. Uh, you got to do it no matter what. You know, you've got to trust that the other guys are doing their jobs. We looked at some of the things on, on you know, on the, um, on, the, um, on, the, on the tablets, and you can see we've got guys not where they're supposed to be defensively. You know, um, as far as offense was concerned, some of the missed blocks. You know, some of the missed assignments there. So that, that's, you know, we'll get a better look at it uh, tomorrow as coaches, or actually tonight, to be honest with you. Uh, we'll look at it then, and uh, we'll get that taken care of. You know, but uh, there's not much we can do because, again, we play on Thursday. So this will be really just a, a very brief thing for us in terms of explaining things to the players and then getting ready for the Giants. All right, so you heard Ron say in that cut, quote, we look at some of the things on the tablets. And you can see we've got guys not where they're supposed to be defensively, end quote. Huh? What? This is supposed to be a more well-prepared team. This is supposed to be a better coached team. This team, this past offseason, had a pretty much normal offseason. You had... OTA practices. You had mini camp practices. You had a true training camp. You had a three game preseason in which you chose not to play starters all that much. And guys aren't where they're supposed to be. Again, if this happened with Joe Barry as defensive coordinator, or with Greg Minuski as defensive coordinator, or with Jay Gruden as head coach, Imagine the things that we would be saying. It's not a good look at all that guys in week one, especially from a defense that was very good last season, especially from a defense that has been hyped to the moon this past offseason, didn't know where to be, or at least weren't where they were supposed to be defensively. That's bad, man. That was troubling when I heard Ron say that. But of course, it's really not that surprising that Ron said that because again, Washington's third down defense against the Chargers was just the worst you'll ever see. 14 for 18 were the Chargers on third downs prior to Justin Herbert's kneel down on a third and goal at the nine on the final snap of the game. Just to take you through some of the third down fails by Washington's defense in this game. The Chargers' first offensive drive. Talk about hitting the ground running, by the way. The Chargers played like nobody during the preseason and looked outstanding uh, from the get-go in this game. Uh, The Chargers' first offensive drive of the game, 10 plays, 75 yards, resulted in running back Austin Eckler's first quarter, first and goal, three-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. Ninth snap of the drive on a third and 10 at the Washington 15, James Smith-Williams. Or is it James Williams-Smith, Ron? I'm not sure. Very confident in what we've seen from, 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 from James William Smith. Yeah, that guy, whatever his name is, he committed a five-yard neutral zone infraction penalty. The Chargers' fourth offensive drive, 10 plays, 76 yards, resulted in Tristan Viscano's second quarter, 33-yard field goal for a 10-6 Chargers lead. Six snap of the drive, Kendall Fuller got beat 
by receiver Jalen Guyton on a Justin Herbert third and three, 22-yard shotgun completion to Guyton. Chargers' fifth offensive drive, 18 plays, 65 yards, consumed seven minutes, 52 seconds off the clock, resulted in Tristan Vizcano's late second quarter, 27-yard field goal for a 13-6 Chargers lead. Third snap of the drive, William Jackson the third, a third and five, two-yard pass interference penalty on Keenan Allen for a Chargers first down. Chargers' sixth offensive drive was the Chargers' first offensive drive of the second half, resulted in that touchback for Washington via the ball going out of bounds through the end zone on that Montez Sweat third quarter sack strip of Justin Herbert on the second and goal at the seven. Huge defensive play, no doubt, but on that drive, third snap of the drive, Herbert, third and three, 11-yard under center completion to tight end Jared Cook. Six snap of the drive, Herbert, third and 10, 23-yard shotgun completion to Cook, who was wide open. Tenth snap of the drive, Herbert, third and five, six-yard shotgun completion to receiver Keenan Allen, who beat Benjamin St. Juice. The Chargers likey the juice, but likey the juice for all the wrong reasons because Benjamin St. Juice got picked on as this game went on. You like the juice, eh? Yes, the Chargers likey the juice, but again, for bad reasons from our perspective. Chargers' ninth offensive drive. What was the final drive of the game? This was a killer. Fourth snap of the drive, Justin Herbert, third and 16, 17-yard shotgun completion to receiver Keenan Allen, who has opened up the seam. Seventh snap of the drive, Herbert, third and three, 19-yard shotgun completion to receiver K.J. Hill Jr., who was open up the seam. Tenth snap of the drive, and a snap right before the fourth quarter two-minute warning. Herbert, third and seven, 20-yard shotgun completion to receiver Mike Williams, who beat, guess who? Yes, Benjamin St. Juice. You like it in juice, eh? <laughs> Yeah, Justin Herbert likey the juice on Sunday. I promise you that. And then the 13th snap of the drive and the final true play of the game, Justin Herbert, a third and four, nine-yard shotgun completion to receiver Keenan Allen to ice the game. I mentioned earlier Ron Rivera's decision to punt, and that did become a talking point after the game, Washington had a 4th and 12 at the Chargers 45 with 6.50 left in the fourth quarter, trailing by 4 2016, opted to punt, and Washington ended up never getting the ball back. Obviously, in hindsight, Washington should have tried for the first down, but it was not unreasonable to think that your defense might get the ball back. I mean, again, you had 6 minutes 50 seconds left in the game, and Washington Four snaps into the ensuing Chargers drive had the Chargers on a third and 16 at their own 12, and the defense couldn't get the job done. The third down defense was so bad in this game. And so to me, it's like, well, do you kill Ron Rivera for punting on the fourth and 12 at the Chargers 45? Because to me, it's more like, no, nah, you kill the defense for sucking on third downs on Sunday. That's who, that's who you kill, okay? Now, Ron deserves some of the blame for the defense sucking on third downs. That's true. But strategically, I really didn't have that big of a problem punting on fourth and 12. I mean, it'd be one thing if that was like fourth and three, fourth and 12. Eh, all right, I can get punting there, play the field position game. And in theory, your defense should be able to get a stop. And sure enough, the defense set itself up for a third and 16 and yet couldn't get the job done and then gave up multiple more third down conversions by the Chargers on that final drive 
of the game. It's the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's regular season opening 2016 loss to the Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Takeaway number four, this was a very mixed game for Antonio Gibson. We saw some great stuff from Antonio Gibson. We saw some very troubling stuff from Antonio Gibson. It's all part of the growth process, I suppose. Uh, Gibson on Sunday, 20 carries for 90 yards. You like that? Four and a half yards per carry. But he also had two fumbles, including a crucial loss fumble. He had three receptions for 18 yards on five targets, but the two targets that did not result in catches were drops. So Gibson on Sunday had two fumbles, including a loss fumble, and two drops. Not good, but he also was productive as a runner. There was a lot to take in with Antonio Gibson. So Washington's second offensive drive, six plays, 36 yards, resulted in Dustin Hopkins' first quarter 30-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 7-3. Second snap of the drive, Gibson a second and six, 27-yard shotgun handoff run on which he ran through an attempted tackle by linebacker Kaiser White. Awesome play. Third snap of the drive, Gibson a first and 10 shotgun handoff run for minus three yards as he initially slipped but then was taken down by interior defensive lineman Justin Jones, who clearly grabbed Gibson's face mask. So I don't kill Antonio Gibson for that run. The officials blew it, although Gibson did slip initially uh, while he was running. Washington's third offensive drive, seven plays, 46 yards, resulted in Dustin Hopkins' early second quarter, 43-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 7-6. Third snap of the drive and the final snap of the first quarter, Gibson, a third and two, six-yard shotgun handoff run. Sixth snap of the drive, Gibson, an early second quarter drop on a Ryan Fitzpatrick second and 11 shotgun incompletion. So a big third down run, but also a drop. Uh, Washington, sixth offensive drive, opening drive of the second half, eight plays, 81 yards, resulted in the Taylor Heineke third quarter, first and 10, 11-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass to Logan Thomas. Second snap of the drive, Heineke second and five, 11-yard shotgun play action completion to Gibson, who broke through an attempted tackle by the linebacker. Kaiser White. Third snap of the drive. Gibson, first and 10, six-yard shotgun handoff run. Sixth snap of the drive. Gibson, second and eight, two-yard shotgun handoff run on which he fumbled out of bounds. Washington's seventh offensive drive. That's the drive that gave us that Dustin Hopkins early fourth quarter missed 51-yard field goal attempt. Uh, Tell me if you notice a pattern on this drive. Gibson had like a million six-yard runs on this drive. First snap of the drive, Gibson, first and 10, six-yard under center handoff run. Third snap of the drive, Gibson, first and 10, six-yard under center handoff run. Fourth snap of the drive, Gibson, second and four, six-yard shotgun handoff run. Sixth snap of the drive, Gibson, second and 10, guess what? Six-yard shotgun handoff run. Eighth snap of the drive, Gibson, fourth and one, five-yard shotgun handoff run. He was huge on that drive. Love seeing what we saw from Gibson on that drive. Uh, Washington's eighth offensive drive. This is the drive that started at the Washington four off William Jackson III's big fourth quarter interception. But this drive lasted for just one snap. What was it? Antonio Gibson committing a lost fumble on a first and 10 under center handoff run for no gain. A killer of a giveaway. Chargers get the ball first and goal at the three with Washington nursing a 16-13 fourth quarter lead. Ensuing Chargers offensive drive resulted in Justin Herbert's fourth quarter third and goal three-yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Mike Williams and the extra point gave the Chargers a 20-16 lead and that was the final score of the game and then on Washington's ninth offensive drive the one that resulted in that fourth quarter punt first snap of the drive Gibson a drop 
on a Taylor Heineke first and 10 under center play action and completion while being pressured. Uh, next snap was a Gibson second and 10 six-yard shotgun handoff run. Uh, six snap of the drive, Gibson third and one two-yard shotgun handoff run. And then the seventh snap of the drive, Gibson first and 10 five-yard shotgun handoff run. So there's a lot to digest with Gibson. Again, as a ball carrier, you saw some really good things. A lot of runs of five yards or more. Awesome. But you also saw the two fumbles. You saw one of the worst giveaways you'll ever see, right? A lost fumble as your team has possession at its own four. I mean, just a killer moment. And he had a couple of drops in the pass catching game, you know, for all the conversation we've had about, well, Antonio Gibson needs to be on the field more on third downs. Not if he can't hold on to the football. Okay, he's got to work on his hands. Uh, that's pretty clear, both in terms of not fumbling and in terms of not dropping passes. And then takeaway number five, uh, this was a very mixed game for Washington's offensive line. So the starting offensive line from left to right, Charles Leno Jr., Eric Flowers, Chase Rulier, Brandon Sheriff, and Samuel Cosme. Washington has two new starting offensive tackles this season, and we saw each guy give it up in terms of pass pro in this game. Now, you also have to say this. The offensive line paved the way for Antonio Gibson to have 20 carries for 90 yards, four and a half yards per carry. So I do want to give Washington's offensive line credit for that. But while on the one hand, the O-line did that, on the other hand, the O-line allowed two crucial shots on Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Brandon Sheriff was guilty of two penalties on one drive. Uh, that bothered me a lot. More on that in a moment. But the shots that were given up on Fitzpatrick, Washington's third offensive drive, was a seven-play, 46-yard drive. Resulted in a Dustin Hopkins early second quarter, 43-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 7-6. The seventh snap of that drive and the snap right before the field goal was edge rusher Joey Bosa beating Samuel Cosme for a third and 11 sack strip of Ryan Fitzpatrick that Logan Thomas recovered. Look, Cosme is a second round rookie. He's going to have some rough moments, but that was a particularly bad one and a potentially very costly one. Thankfully, Logan recovered the football. The next offensive drive for Washington, this is the one that resulted in a second quarter three and out, and this is the one on which Fitzpatrick got hurt. The first snap of the drive, Charles Leno Jr. got torched by edge rusher Uchenna Nuosu, who blasted Fitzpatrick on what was officially a first and 10 shotgun incompletion intended for J.D. McKissick. That was the play on which Fitzpatrick got hurt. Look, I know offensive linemen give stuff up, and I know the Chargers have some talented guys in terms of the edge rushers, especially Bosa, but those were two bad moments, and uh, one may have cost you Ryan Fitzpatrick the rest of the season. We'll see. Again, we hope for the best. And then with Brandon Sheriff. Brandon Scherf. Yes, Commissioner Goodell. Brandon Sheriff. You know, I guess a one-year $18.036 million non-exclusive franchise tag tender doesn't buy what it used to buy. Washington's seventh offensive drive, the one that resulted in the Dustin Hopkins early fourth quarter missed 51-yard field goal attempt. The ninth snap of that drive, Brandon Sheriff commits a first and 10, 10-yard holding penalty on a Jared Patterson six-yard run. And then the 13th snap of the drive and the first snap of the fourth quarter, Brandon Sheriff, a third and five, five-yard false start penalty, which helped to make the Hopkins field goal attempt a 51-yarder. Now, maybe if that Sheriff penalty doesn't happen, Hopkins still misses his field goal attempt. But that's not the point. 
Two penalties on one drive for Brandon Sheriff, who, as we all know, wants top-of-the-market money, who, as we all know, is in the midst of playing under the terms of a non-exclusive franchise tag tender for a second consecutive season. I'm sorry, that can't happen. Two penalties like that on a crucial second-half drive in a tight game, especially that third and five, five-yard false start penalty. That bothered me a lot that he did that. And, you know, this is not the first time that Brandon Sheriff has had a problem with penalties. I know he's very good, okay? I don't deny that. I don't dispute that. But he commits penalties. He has a hard time staying healthy. And this is part of why I would not pay him the top of the market long-term money that he's seeking. I would not have franchise tagged him for a second consecutive year. So there you go. The front five. My five biggest takeaways for the Washington football team's regular season opening 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Takeaway number one, here we go again with another season in which we have multiple starting quarterbacks for Washington. Takeaway number two, Taylor Heineke played well again. Takeaway number three, Washington's defense was atrocious on third downs. Takeaway number four, this was a very mixed game for Antonio Gibson. And takeaway number five, this was a very mixed game for Washington's offensive line. More thoughts on the game coming up in moments, including, believe it or not, bright spots for Washington's defense against the Chargers. Yes, there were bright spots. You may be asking some questions about that. I'll give you some answers. If you ever have questions about your skin health, always know that Dr. George Verghese will provide answers. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. For whatever your dermatological needs may be, whatever your questions may be, don't hesitate to contact Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That's 301-396-3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, some more thoughts on the Washington football team off its season-opening 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. So one of the real shames of Washington getting walloped in the time of possession battle because the third down defense was so bad and because the offense for a good chunk of the game wasn't very good, the lack of touches for playmakers beyond Antonio Gibson. You know, we spent so much of this offseason talking about all these new weapons for Washington on offense. And the truth is, with the exception of Gibson, nobody really touched the ball all that much in this game. 
on Sunday afternoon. Uh, That was a real issue. That was a real problem. The playmakers didn't get nearly as many chances to make plays as we would have wanted. So, you know, you see that domino effect of the bad third down defense, and it wasn't entirely on the bad third down defense because, again, you have to sustain drives offensively. But, man, I mean, a lot of guys who we were excited to see on Sunday ended up not touching the football all that much. So, first of all, right, no Curtis Samuel. Uh, the team on Friday officially putting Samuel on the reserve injured list due to the groin injury. we got to talk about that some more as the week progresses here. Terry McLaurin did have four receptions for 62 yards on four targets. He made some big catches in this game, but four targets for Terry McLaurin, way too few. I mean, Terry McLaurin, to me, is a top 10 receiver in the NFL. He needs 12, 15, 16 targets per game minimum. He gets four over the course of this game. Adam Humphreys, two receptions, 10 yards on two targets. Cam Sims, one reception for 17 yards on one target. Yeah, Cam was targeted just one time the entire game. Deami Brown, one reception for minus two yards on four targets, although he did draw a big pass interference penalty. Washington's third offensive drive, seven plays, 46 yards, resulted in the Dustin Hopkins early second quarter 43-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 7-6. The fourth snap of that drive in the first snap of the second quarter, Diami drawing a first and 10, 35-yard pass interference penalty on corner Asante Samuel Jr. Uh, But Logan Thomas, three receptions, 30 yards and a touchdown on three targets. J.D. McKissick in the game had one carry for eight yards, no receptions on one target. Jarrett Patterson, two carries for nine yards, no receptions on one target. Just lack of touches for all of these Washington football team playmakers, or at the very least, potential playmakers. That was a real shame as the game went on. Uh, With that Washington defense, though, I do want to say this. There were some good things from the defense. I know that's probably like the last thing you want to hear because the third down defense was so bad. But the truth is, there was the third down defense, and then there was like the defense on every other down in this game. So Washington had two big second half takeaways. We shouldn't lose sight of that. Chargers' sixth offensive drive was the Chargers' first offensive drive of the second half, fourth snap of the drive. William Jackson, the third, first of all, great coverage on receiver Keenan Allen on a Justin Herbert first and 10 shotgun and completion intended for Allen. And then the 12th snap of that drive, third quarter, second and goal at the seven, Montez Sweat abusing the Chargers' backup right tackle, Storm Norton, for a sack strip that goes through the end zone for a touchback. Norton was in the game due to the Chargers starting right tackle, Brian Balaga, getting injured. But a big play there by Montez Sweat. Huge play inside the red zone. Then on the Chargers' next offensive drive, this would be uh, offensive drive number seven for the Chargers. Fifth snap of the drive on a fourth quarter, first and 10 for the Chargers at the Washington 20. William Jackson the third, a massive interception on a Justin Herbert offset eye play action pass intended for tight end Steven Anderson. Jackson does a great job of beating Anderson to the ball inside the Washington five. Two huge takeaways for Washington in the second half. We shouldn't minimize those. Uh, Washington was very good inside the red zone. You talk about bending but not breaking. Washington actually did that for a good chunk of this game. I mean, Washington only gave up 20 points. And seven of the points came thanks to an Antonio Gibson fumble inside the five. I mean, think about that. Washington's defense, for as bad as it was on third downs, actually put Washington in a position to win the game from a standpoint of only giving up 
20 points, and really you could cut that in down to 13 points if you want to be more fair about things. Washington held the Chargers to just two for six in the red zone in this game. Some good red zone defense for Washington in this game. There was that Chargers fourth offensive drive. 10 plays, 76 yards resulted in Tristan Viscano's second quarter 33-yard field goal for a 10-6 Chargers lead. The ninth snap of the drive on a second and five at the Washington 16. Deron Payne tackling running back Austin Eckler on a one-yard under center handoff run. We saw Washington do this last year, give some stuff up at times, but be stout in the red zone. We actually saw that for a good chunk of this game. Uh, The Chargers' fifth offensive drive, 18 plays, 65 yards, consumed seven minutes, 52 seconds off the clock, but only resulted in three. Tristan Viscano, late second quarter, 27-yard field goal for a 13-6 Chargers lead. Eight snap of the drive, Chase Young drawing a second and 10, 10-yard holding penalty on the right tackle, Brian Villaga. And then on the 18th snap of the drive, yes, there was an 18th snap on this drive. On a second and goal at the six, Chase Young, great pressure, Jonathan Allen, a sack. A sack of Justin Herbert for a three-yard loss. Again, very good red zone defense by Washington. And then there was also this with the defense. I know it didn't always feel this way, but Washington's run defense ended up being good. Washington held Chargers running backs Austin Eckler and Larry Roundtree III to a combined 23 carries for 84 yards. That works out to 3.65 yards per carry. The reason that the run defense probably doesn't feel that good is because Eckler and Roundtree ran wild on that Chargers first offensive drive. The drive that resulted in the Eckler first quarter, first and goal, three-yard touchdown run. Eckler and Roundtree on that drive combined for four carries for 30 yards, but Eckler and Roundtree the rest of the game combined for 19 carries for 54 yards, 2.84 yards per carry. So I do want to note these things It wasn't like the defense was a complete and total embarrassment the entire game. The defense was just a complete and total embarrassment on third downs. This was a bizarre game in a lot of ways for the Washington defense. But if you told me game in, game out this season, Washington is only giving up around 20 points per game, I would take that in a heartbeat. And you should too. So yeah, I mean, I think the defense is far from like a lost cause. It just was really aggravating to see what we saw on third downs. And Washington, like I said, did well against the run as the game went on. Just like Weedman will do well for you by your lawn. Weedman cares for your lawn, so you don't have to. Uh, Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, and a variety of other services. So look, if you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, you want to enjoy your weekends and who could blame you, no worries. Let Weedman Take care of your lawn. Weedman is a national network of locally owned franchises, so you'll receive the personal service that you deserve. Weedman answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weedman does what it says it's going to do. I know all of that sounds simple, and it is, but it's not nearly as common as it should be. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not someone somewhere in, say, the Midwest. You're not waiting for 30 minutes to speak to someone. Weedman actually has real answers that have meaning in your area. If you have, say, that little area on your lawn that needs attention, Weedman will take care of that area. You're not dealing with a huge, faceless corporation that treats you like a number. You can trust Weedman. You can count on Weedman. Weedman uses superior products to really improve your soil, and Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn, if you're not satisfied with who is treating your lawn, make the switch to Weedman. 
Weedman's products are of the highest quality. Weedman does not cut corners. And understand that a beautiful spring lawn actually starts now as we're approaching the fall. And so Weedman is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, a fall tune-up at a great price, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services. The price is a steal. The price applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. Again, about $100 off the usual price for those services. That phone number again, 571 340-3400 340-3400 and make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. You can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. One more topic regarding the Washington football team season opening loss to the Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. So special teams, we spent a lot of time talking about them so we should note him. Uh, Dustin Hopkins, three of four on field goals on Sunday. Overall, I thought a good game for Dustin Hopkins. Yes, you would have liked for him to have made that 51-yarder. Wide left on an early fourth quarter missed 51-yard field goal attempt was old D-Hop. But he did come through on his three other field goal tries in the game. Connected on a first quarter 30-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 7-3. Connected on an early second quarter 43-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 7-6. And Hopkins connected on a 48-yard field goal on the final snap of the first half to cut Washington's deficit to 13-9. I thought Tressway had a good game. He averaged 46 yards per punt, 45 net yards per punt. He had that first quarter 56-yard punt that went out of bounds at the Chargers 12. And I thought DeAndre Carter gave Washington a little something-something on returns. I was happy with what Carter provided. He averaged 11 yards over two punt returns. He averaged 21.7 yards over three kickoff returns. The kickoff return average wasn't great, but he did have a nice kickoff return in the game. So first of all, with the punts, because I think those returns are what matter the most. Uh, DeAndre Carter had a 14-yard first quarter punt return that gave Washington the ball at the Chargers 48. The ensuing Washington offensive drive resulted in that Hopkins first quarter 30-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 7-3. The big kickoff return by Carter was a second quarter 31-yard kickoff return on a kickoff that was caught at the Washington 1. The ensuing Washington drive, though, did result into three and out as uh, this was the drive on which Ryan Fitzpatrick got hurt. But Hopkins 3 of 4 on field goals, Tressway doing Tressway things, and DeAndre Carter, at least for one game, representing an upgrade on punt returns, especially of uh, what we went through with Steven Sims and to a lesser extent Isaiah Wright uh, last season. Washington did have some special teams penalties, including the Cheeseman, the long snapper, Cameron Cheeseman, committing a 10-yard holding penalty on a fourth quarter Tressway punt. Very busy college football Saturday over the weekend, including a major firing at Navy. I'll get to that and much more after this. All right. Well, Washington football team season has finally arrived, and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Washington football team tickets. That's because TickPick 
that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. We're all excited to watch the WFT this season. Whether you're looking to watch Young Sweat and the defense battle Mahomes and the Chiefs or Brady and the Bucks at home or wanting to travel with Fitzmagic and the guys to watch them play at Rodgers and the Packer, at Carr and the Raiders, or you want to hit up the division games, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets, no more of those ridiculous service fees. So here's what you do. Visit TickPick.com slash Galdi right now and use the promo code Galdi to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K P-I-C-K dot com slash Galdi and use the promo code Galdi. TickPick.com slash Galdi and make sure that you use the promo code Galdi. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, let's talk college football week two as it relates to the big four area teams, Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. So for the Terrapins, an easy breezy game number two in their season. Maryland off its season opening 30-24 win over West Virginia 
at College Park the previous Saturday and proved it 2-0 with a 62-0 blowout of Howard at Maryland Stadium in College Park on Saturday night. This game was exactly what this game should have been. The Terrapins destroying an FCS team in Howard, which took the payday of playing at Maryland in exchange for getting it destroyed. That's how that works. Uh, It's like a jobber in pro wrestling. You're there to get beat. You are paid to get beat. You know, Howard played its role of uh, Barry Horowitz, of Iron Mike Sharp, of the Brooklyn Brawler, of Tom Stone, of Lee Scott. I could keep going, but I will stop right there. You get the idea. Uh, the Terp starting quarterback, Talia Tungavailoa, played for just the first half, and yet he finished 22 of 27 for 274 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions. He took one sack. His backup, Reese Udinsky, a graduate transfer from VMI, played the second half, went 5 of 5 for 73 yards, a touchdown, and no interceptions. He took no sacks. Next up for the Terps is a game this Friday night at Illinois at 9 in the Terps Big Ten opener. Speaking of Illinois, uh, it got smashed at Virginia on Saturday. The Cavaliers improved at 2-0 with a 42-14 blowout of Illinois at Scott Stadium in Charlottesville. This was the first Virginia football game in the history of Scott Stadium to begin at 11 a.m. Scott Stadium opened in October 1931, and the Cavaliers dominated this game. You know, I wondered on Goldilocks on Friday's show, episode 142, whether the early start time might be an issue for the old fighting aligned eye. And I don't know, maybe the start time had nothing to do with this performance, but Illinois was not ready to go. Virginia walloped the fighting aligned eye in this game. The Cavs averaged 7.6 yards per play to Illinois' 4.7. The Cavs had 556 total net yards of offense to Illinois' 337. Uh, the Wahoos' pass defense was excellent. The Who's held Illinois quarterback, former Rutgers quarterback, Art Sitkowski, to just 221 yards on 45 pass attempts. That's 4.91 yards per pass attempt. The Who's finished with an interception, seven pass breakups, and three sacks. Big game for Virginia outside linebacker Noah Taylor, two sacks and a pass breakup. But the guy who stood out more than anyone for Virginia was its quarterback, Brennan Armstrong. He was outstanding in this game. 27 of 36 for 405 yards. That's 11.25 yards per pass attempt. He had five touchdown passes versus one interception, and he had five carries for 31 yards. He was not sacked once, constantly had a ton of time with which to throw as UVA's pass protection was terrific. Heck, Brennan Armstrong in this game had an 18-yard reception in the third quarter, and he did all of this despite dealing with an apparent knee injury of some sort during the game. Armstrong in just the first quarter, 7 of 13 for 171 yards and two touchdowns. Armstrong had a first quarter, second and 15, 32-yard Shotgun play action, touchdown pass to tight end and Oklahoma State graduate transfer, Jelani Woods. So Armstrong connected with Woods at around the Illinois 8. And then Woods, who is listed by UVA as being 6'7 and 265 pounds, talk about a load, plowed through two attempted tackles and are out to the end zone. Uh, Woods finished with five receptions for 122 yards and a touchdown. This off missing most of Virginia's season opening win, the 43-0 blowout of William & Mary at Scott Stadium the previous Saturday night due to cramps. And then Armstrong had a first quarter second at a 28-yard shotgun touchdown pass 
to receiver Dontavian Wicks, hitting him right as he was crossing the goal line. Wicks finished with three receptions for 69 yards and two touchdowns. Armstrong looks good so far. He and uh, Wahua will be tested in their next game as next up for Virginia at North Carolina this Saturday night at 7.30. Now the Tar Heels bounce back from their 17-10 loss at Virginia Tech now two Friday evenings ago with a 59-17 blowout of Georgia State on Saturday night. Speaking of the Hokies, they improved to 2-0 with a 35-14 win over Middle Tennessee at Lane Stadium in Blacksburg on Saturday afternoon. The Hokies' defense excellent for a second time in as many games this season. The Hokies held Middle Tennessee quarterback Bailey Hockman to just 270 yards on 37 pass attempts, 6.47 yards per pass attempt, intercepted him once, sacked him twice. Hokies held Middle Tennessee non-quarterbacks to just 81 net rushing yards on 31 carries, 2.61 yards per carry. And I don't include quarterback rushing numbers because college football statistics ridiculously include yards lost on sacks in rushing yards totals. I have never liked that. I've always hated that. I've never understood why college football does that. But yet, team rushing numbers and rushing numbers for quarterbacks are always so skewed because they include yardage lost on sacks. That makes no sense to me, and yet that's been the case for years. Uh, Tech's rushing attack was great in this game, too. Tech finished with 39 carries for 224 yards and four touchdowns. That's 5.74 yards per carry. Running back Rasheem Blackshear, 10 carries, 53 yards, two touchdowns. Uh, Running back Jalen Houston, five carries, 31 yards, and a touchdown, which was a good look in third quarter, second and four, 29-yard shotgun handoff, read option, touchdown run. And then quarterback Connor Blumrick, a graduate transfer from Texas A&M. He's listed as being 6'5 and 215 pounds, makes for a good red zone threat. He had three carries for 38 yards and a touchdown. Now, the Hokies starting quarterback, Braxton Burmeister, mixed game for him. Uh, On the one hand, he threw for just 142 yards on 24 pass attempts. That's just 5.92 yards per pass attempt. That's not very good. Uh, Head coach Justin Fuente during his postgame press conference said that Burmeister, quote, played his heart out but he can be a more efficient player than he is right now. And he knows that. And we know that. And we've got to find a way to craft this so that he can kind of grow a little bit. And quote, on the other hand, though, Burmeister displayed some toughness in this game. He got knocked out of the game briefly, but then came back into the game and threw his touchdown pass through a late first quarter, second and goal, six yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Tavion Robinson on a fade route. And Burmeister finished the game uh, with that one touchdown pass versus no interceptions. He took just one sack. He had eight carries for 52 yards, even when factoring in the sack. Uh, And Burmeister quarterback to Hokies offense that went six for nine on third downs with him in the game. So, you know, it's not like the guy was a complete mess, but there definitely is another level that you'd like to see this Tech passing game get to. Uh, Knox Kadem quarterback the Hokies briefly late in the first quarter with Burmeister out of the game and then again on the Hokies final drive of the game. Next up for Virginia Tech at West Virginia this Saturday at noon. And then there is Navy, which is really bad right now and which has fired its offensive coordinator. So Navy began its season with a 49-7 loss to Marshall at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium in Annapolis. Now, two Saturdays ago, September 4th, now Navy is 0-2, a 23-3 loss to Air Force in Annapolis this past Saturday. And Navy, after the game, fired assistant head coach, offensive coordinator, and quarterbacks coach 
Ivan Jasper. Uh, the news breaking via multiple reports on Saturday night. This is a big deal. Ivan Jasper had been a mainstay, a constant for Navy football. This season was Jasper's 22nd year at the Naval Academy, his 20th year as the quarterbacks coach, his 14th year as the offensive coordinator. He was Navy's quarterbacks and running backs coach for the 1995 and 96 seasons, then returned to Navy for the 2002 season, which was Paul Johnson's first season as Navy head coach. That really marked the renaissance of Navy football, and Jasper had been at Navy since then, uh, and he had been a big part of Navy's success since then. Navy from 2003 through 2019 had 15 winning seasons in 17 years, and Jasper had a lot to do with that. Uh, Jasper got promoted to offensive coordinator beginning with the 2008 season. It was during his run as Navy offensive coordinator that Navy had this success and had this success with various quarterbacks just killing it. Whether you're talking about Ricky Dobbs or Cannon Reynolds or Malcolm Perry, Ivan Jasper was the offensive coordinator for all of that. Uh, Navy as recently as the 2019 season went 11-2 and and finished, get this, number nine in the FBS in offensive efficiency for ESPN. But last season did not go well. Navy went just 3-7, and seven, finished 116th in the FBS in offensive efficiency for ESPN. And Navy so far this season has been woeful. Uh, Navy's offense in this home loss to Air Force on Saturday was atrocious. The midshipmen scored just three points. The midshipmen totaled just 68 total net yards of offense and averaged a microscopic one Point five yards per play. The midshipmen went one for 12 on third downs and totaled just six first downs. Uh, Navy continued to play multiple quarterbacks in this blowout loss to Air Force on Saturday. Started Xavier Arline at quarterback, but also played Masai Maynard. Uh, Ty Lovatai, who was Navy's starting quarterback in its season opening blowout loss to Marshall in Annapolis on September 4th, was out due to injury. Uh, Navy's defense wasn't bad against Air Force, held Air Force to 3.3 yards per play, just 7 of 18 on third downs. But Navy had more special teams problems on Saturday. A bad snap in a punt formation resulted in the ball sailing through the end zone for a safety for Air Force. Special teams were a big problem for Navy in that season opening home blowout loss to Marshall. Navy's next game, not until two Saturdays from now, September 25th at Houston in the midshipmen's AAC opener. Uh, but man, head coach Ken Niamatololo isn't fooling around whacking his right-hand man, Ivan Jasper, just two games into the season. Well, in what has been a woeful season for the Nationals, there has been no more woeful weekend than being swept at the lowly Orioles. July 23rd through the 25th, the Nats were swept in a three-game series at the O's, sealing the Nats' fate as sellers and effectively ending the Nats' season from a postseason contention standpoint. Well, a three-game sweep at the lowly Pittsburgh Pirates this past weekend would not have been much better than that sweep at the O's in July, but the Nats did avoid being swept at the Pirates. A 4-3 walk-off loss on Friday night, a 10-7 loss on Saturday night, but a 6-2 win on Sunday afternoon. And so, Davey Martinez, if you would. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, the boys prevailed. Uh, the boys now are 59 and 84 on the season. The Pirates now are 52 and 91, second worst record in the National League, and the Pirates have an NL worst run differential 
of minus 209. So let's hit on some of the major items from this National Series loss at the Pittsburgh Pirates. We'll start with the starting pitching, and Patrick Corbin was good on Sunday afternoon. Corbin in this 6-2 win at the Pirates, two runs in seven innings. Now, yes, the Pirates are not good, but you know who hasn't been good as well this season? Patrick Corbin, okay? So if he has a good start, uh, you take that and you run with it right now if you're a Nationals fan. Corbin on Sunday afternoon gave up just four hits, a triple and three singles. He only issued two walks. He had four strikeouts. That's not great, but okay. Uh, He threw 64 strikes versus 37 balls on 101 pitches. He was effective, which is not something that we've been able to say often about Patrick Corbin this season. And this now makes back-to-back effective starts for Corbin. He in the 4-3 win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park last Monday afternoon. So Labor Day afternoon, September 6, allowed three runs in seven innings. Now, he wasn't great in that game. He gave up 11 hits, a homer, a double, and nine singles. He also had just four strikeouts in that game, but he also only issued one walk in that game, and he threw a bunch of strikes in that game. 73 strikes versus 41 balls on 100 14 pitches. So in each of his last two outings, Patrick Corbin has lasted for seven innings. He's combined to allow just five runs over those 14 innings combined. That's good. That's progress. Now, you know, to me, Patrick Corbin has so long to go until you can say that he's back to where he was at in 2019. But something that I do think uh, would prove to be a value would be Patrick Corbin ending his season on a relative high note. This has been an atrocious season for Patrick Corbin. But if he can piece together three, four, five consecutive good outings or relatively good outings to end his season, I think there's something to that. And I think maybe that is something that can make you say, all right, there's a lot of work to be done with this guy. We're still not certain about anything with this guy, but at least it doesn't seem as if he's a total lost cause. You know, at least it feels like the notion of Patrick Corbin rebounding in 2022 isn't some pie in the sky idea that maybe just maybe this guy can get his career back on track. He does now have his ERA for the season under six for whatever that's worth. Uh, Patrick Corbin over 28 starts now this season, an ERA of 598. Uh, That is still the worst ERA among qualified pitchers in the majors. A guy who is not pitching well right now is Josiah Gray. Uh, It's amazing how this Nationals rotation has gone this season. Basically, if you've been a National starting pitcher this season and your name isn't Max Scherzer, you have struggled mightily at some point this year. Josiah Gray in the 10-7 loss at the Pirates on Saturday night was bad for a third consecutive start. He allowed five runs in five innings. He issued a jaw-dropping six walks over the five innings as he threw just 54 strikes versus 46 balls on 100 pitches. He only gave up three hits, but they were two home runs and a two-run single. He had four strikeouts. Josiah Gray now, over his last three starts, has totaled just 12 innings and has given up 17 earned runs. Yeah, 17 earned runs in 12 innings over his last three starts. And the walks were what stood out more than anything from this Josiah Gray outing on Saturday night. Again, six walks in five innings. You likely know that he gives up home runs. He gave up two more on Saturday night, but six walks issued by Josiah Gray on Saturday night. So he now over 48 major league innings. This goes back to some of what he did with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Has given up 17 home runs and 23 non-intentional walks. That works out to a home runs per nine innings of 3.19 and a walks per nine innings of 4.31. Not good. Not good at all. 
And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, Josiah Gray, now what? This guy's a bust. Like, no, it's three consecutive bad starts. It doesn't mean that he's ruined, okay? I would like to think that we can chalk up these last three starts to growing pains. Remember, he was quite good over his first five major league starts for the Nationals, an ERA of 289 during that stretch. But it is troublesome. It is bothersome that this guy has gone from pitching to the tune of a 289 ERA over five starts to now over his last three starts having been a mess. The Nats have got to figure him out. The Nats can't let him end his season continuing to pitch poorly. Josiah Gray is a building block, hopefully a viable building block, hopefully someone who is a part of the next generation of good Nationals teams, perhaps sooner rather than later. He offered so much reason for optimism with what he did over his first five starts for the Nats at the major league level, but he really has taken steps back here over these last few outings. We know that he's dealt with some mechanical issues. Nats have got to get this cleaned up, got to get him fixed. It has not been a good look for the Nationals as an organization this season, seeing so many guys regress. Patrick Corbin has regressed. Eric Fetty has regressed. Joe Ross has regressed. You would hate for this season to end with Josiah Gray having regressed. I mean, please, can we have someone who at least maintains pitching well and maybe even gets better? I mean, imagine that with a Nationals pitcher this year, but did not like what I saw from Josiah Gray on Saturday night. The Nationals game one starter in this series loss at the Pirates was Josh Rogers, and Josh Rogers was good. Uh, the lefty in that 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates on Friday night, two runs in six and two-thirds innings. Now, he did give up eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles. He did have just one strikeout, but he also issued just one walk. He threw 55 strikes versus 27 balls on 82 pitches. He worked quickly. He worked efficiently. He threw strikes and he limited damage. Again, two runs in six and two-thirds innings. The Nats have had this knack for getting guys who have no business doing well and then those guys doing well. We've seen it with a bunch of position players in recent years. Gerardo Parra, Asdrubal Cabrera, Josh Harrison, Alcides Escobar. And we've seen it this season with some starting pitchers. Paolo Espino, Sean Nolan, and now Josh Rogers. Um, now, does this last? Probably not. But you know what? Go Josh. Good for him. Uh, this is only Rogers' second start for the Nationals. He, in his Nats debut, a 4-3, seven-inning win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park. Now, two Saturday evenings ago, this was in game two of a doubleheader. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings, but he was better in that game than that final line suggested, and he threw a bunch of strikes in that game. 57 strikes versus 30 balls on 87 pitches. Josh Rogers had not pitched in a major league regular season game since 2019 when he was with the Orioles. The O's got Rogers from the New York Yankees in July 2018 in the Zach Britton trade. Rogers was taken by the Yankees in the 11th round of the 2015 MLB draft out of Louisville. So an interesting weekend in good ways and bad ways for the Nationals rotation. An interesting weekend for the Nationals bullpen, uh, which continues to have major problems. Now, the bullpen did come through in this 6-2 win at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon. Terrific work by Kyle Finnegan. One and two-thirds perfect innings for a five-out save. He's now nine for 11 on saves this season. His ERA for the season is down to 261. Uh, he helped to clean up what Mason Thompson left. Uh, Mason Thompson began the bottom of the eighth on Sunday afternoon, but issued a leadoff six-pitch walk at Hoy Park and gave up a one-out full-count single to Kevin Newman and then got pulled from the game. But the bullpen was a big-time problem in games one and two in this series. So that 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates 
on Friday night. Uh, Andres Machado did toss one in the third scoreless innings. He was good. But Patrick Murphy entered the game to begin the bottom of the ninth with the Nats nursing a 3-2 lead. This was his first career Major League regular season save opportunity. And he was a complete wreck and was ultimately charged with two runs in a third of an inning. Murphy gave up a leadoff single to Anthony Alford on an 0-2 pitch. Murphy issued a wild pitch. Murphy issued a four-pitch walk of Ben Gamble. Murphy issued another wild pitch. Murphy did then get Cole Tucker to pop out to Alcides Escobar in very shallow left field. Then the lefty Alberto Baldonado came into the game. So he comes in bottom of the ninth, runners on second and third, one out. The Nats nursing a 3-2 lead. And Baldonado allows two inherited runners to score. It gives up a one-out RBI ground out to Colin Moran. And then Baldonado gives up a two-out walk-off single to key Brian Hayes down the right field line. This was like a gut punch of a loss, and I get it. I mean, these are two last place teams playing in September, Nationals and Pirates, so it's, you know, hard to be that emotionally invested in the outcome of this game. I'm certainly not at all invested in the outcomes of these Nationals games at this point, but, you know, I can sense it from a player's perspective, like them feeling gut punched with a loss like this. I can respect that. You know, you're a competitor, you want to win, and the Nationals coughed up this game on Friday night. And then with this 10-7 loss at the Pirates on Saturday night, uh, Nats relievers combined to allow five runs, three earned in three innings. Uh, Baldonado and Machado combined to allow four runs, two earned in the bottom of the six, as those two guys combined for four walks in the inning. Nationals pitchers were issuing walks like crazy on Saturday night, starting with Josiah Gray, continuing with Alberto Baldonado and Andres Machado. Those three guys over the first six innings on Saturday night combined to issue 10 walks. Think about that. Uh, Sam Clay in the game gave up a run in the bottom of the seventh on a double and a single for a 10-6 Pirates lead. Ryan Harper did toss a scoreless bottom of the eighth with a couple of strikeouts. Offensively speaking, the Nationals remain in a good place. The Nats are a good hitting team. Probably the most remarkable thing since that national sell-off in late July is that the offense has been just fine since the sell-off. And in fact, in a lot of ways, the offense has been better since the sell-off. Juan Soto is hitting out of his mind right now. Uh, Juan Soto on Sunday afternoon in that 6-2 win at the Pirates, two for three with a triple, a double, and two walks. He got on base four times in the game. He also got on base four times in the previous game. So Juan Soto, in a period of 24 hours, got on base four times, twice in two games. Uh, Juan Soto in this series at the Pirates, he was an ad starting right fielder, a number three batter in every game in the series. He went six for 11 with a triple, a double, four singles, and three walks. Soto now has a major league leading 457 on base percentage this season and a major league leading 100 19 walks. Josh Bell had a good weekend at the Pirates. The ex-Pirate taking it to his former team. Bell in this 6-2 win at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon. 0-3, but he drew two more walks. Uh, Josh Bell has been walking a lot lately, and that's a good thing. He had not been drawing many walks earlier this season. Bell was in that starting first baseman and cleanup batter in every game in the series. He drew five walks over the three games. Really love to see the plate selection here lately with Josh Bell. He also had a big home run in that 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates on Friday night. Top of the six, smashed a one-out solo shot to left center field for a 3-1 Nats lead. The homer winner projected 429 feet per stat cast. The lane train continues to roll. Lane Thomas in the 6-2 win at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon. One for five, but the one 
was a three-run homer. Uh, Thomas in the Nats' four-run fourth, a two-out three-run opposite field homer to right field for a 5-2 Nats lead. The homer going a projected 386 feet per stat cast. Thomas was the Nats' starting center fielder and number one batter in every game in the series. Thomas in that 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates on Friday night, one for three with an RBI single and a walk. Thomas in the 10-7 loss at the Pirates on Saturday night, one for four with a double and a walk. This guy gets on base at least once each game, many times uh, more than once per game, and he does good work when down and counts. Uh, Lane Thomas on Friday night in the Nats' two-run second, a two-out full count RBI single to left field for a 2 nothing Nats lead, despite having been down in the count of 1.12. Uh, Lane Thomas on Saturday night in the Nats' two-run fifth, a leadoff opposite field double to the right center field gap on an 0-2 pitch. Lane Thomas now over 111 Major League Plate appearances for the Nats. Batting average at 305, on base percentage at 396, a slugging percentage of 537. Yeah, the dude is slugging 537 so far in his time as a national. Uh, Luis Garcia hit a home run on Sunday afternoon. It was nice to see that. Uh, Luis coming through top of the second, a leadoff homer to right center field for a one nothing Nats lead. The home run going a projected 401 feet per stat cast. Garcia was an Nats starting second baseman in every game of the series. He did have a mixed series, including a big-time defensive boo-boo in the 10-7 loss at the Pirates on Saturday night. So the Pirates in that game had a four-run six. Garcia in that inning committing a two-out, two-run fielding error in butchering a Ben Gamble grounder into shallow right field on a shift for a 9-5 Pirates lead. Uh, the ball was basically hit right to Garcia in the shift, and he botched the play. I mean, that was a classic instance of the shift working to basic perfection. And the Nationals baseball operations people doing a great job of identifying where the ball would be hit by Gamble. The ball essentially goes right to Garcia and again, shallow right field, and he just botched the fielding of the grounder, and the Pirates score two runs on the play, take a four-run lead at 9-5. So, you know, Luis Garcia has a ton of athleticism, a ton of skill. He is very young, uh, but he's someone who needs to be more consistent defensively because he can make this spectacular play, but then he'll screw up the routine play. And he did that, essentially, on Saturday night. I get that he was in a shift. I get that, you know, the grounder was coming to him in right field, but that's a very makeable play. And Luis did not make that play. Uh, the Nats had three different starting catchers over the three games at the Pirates. Riley Adams in game one, Capert Ruiz in game two, and Alex Avila in game three. So the big item had to do with Capert Ruiz in game two, the 10-7 loss at the Pirates on Saturday night. This was such an eventful game for Capert Ruiz. So you start with what happened in a Pirates two-run third inning, a bad defensive inning for Ruiz. First of all, he committed a two-out throwing error in that Pirates two-run third as his throw in an attempted pickoff at second base went into center field, advancing Hoy Park to third base. The throw was terrible. Uh, the throw hopped on the infield grass and into center field. And then later in the inning, Ruiz was deemed guilty of violating the home plate collision rule and offering no path for Yoshi Sutsugo, who ended up being ruled as scoring on what ended up being a two-out bases-loaded two-run single by Colin Moran on a 1-2 pitch for a 2-0 Pirates lead. But also on the play, and this ended up not mattering, was Ruiz committing like a Wilson Ramos and not being able to hold onto the baseball and tagging Sutsugo as he attempted to score off a nice throw by Juan Soto. Ruiz gathered the baseball and then tagged uh, Sutsugo for the apparent out, but that ended up being overturned via a replay challenge by the Pirates. So all kinds of bad things going on defensively for Kbert Ruiz and that Pirates two-run third. But then in the next half inning, the top of the fourth, 
what ended up being a Nationals three-run fourth. Kevin Ruiz had what is easily his biggest hit as a Nat, a two-out first pitch three-run double to right center field of Pirates starter and former Nats prospect Will Crow, who was dealt to the Pirates this past December in the Josh Bell trade. But that was a huge hit, a bases-loaded three-run double for Ruiz, who has not been overly impressive as a batter so far. To his credit, he's been making contact, but it's just he hasn't been getting a lot of hits, hasn't been getting on base. Well, he delivered big time in that spot, gave the Nats a 3-2 lead. But then later in the game, the top of the six, Cabo Ruiz got hit on the right side of his face by a pitch from Pirates reliever Kyle Keller for a leadoff hit by pitch. Ruiz left the game and was pinch run for by Riley Adams. Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference said that x-rays on Ruiz were negative and that Ruiz had a headache. And then Davey during his pregame press conference on Sunday said that Ruiz has cleared concussion testing. So good news there, but we did not see K-Bert Ruiz play in the 6-2 win at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon. We instead saw Alex Avila, presumably because Riley Adams had caught on Friday night and then caught for a good chunk of Saturday night's game. And Avila, who, you know, like barely plays, he's a veteran, there's almost no way that he's back on the team next season. He was productive. He did a good job on Sunday afternoon. One for four with a solo homer and a key defensive play. Uh, Alex Avila in the Nats four-run fourth, blasting a two-out game-tying solo homer to right field to tie the game at two, despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. The home run was Alex Avila's first home run of the season. And how about this? Again, Alex Avila has barely played this season, right? He's been a backup catcher throughout the season. He was out for two months due to the bilateral calf strains that were suffered in early July when he was uh, compelled to be the national starting second baseman in a game against the Los Angeles Dodgers. But Alex Avila on the season, so he only has 14 hits on the season. But how about this? Nine of the 14 hits are extra base hits. He has seven doubles, a triple, and a homer. (laughs) That's pretty freaking good. I mean, who would have expected that? Nine out of 14 Alex Avila hits this season are extra base hits. Now, he's only slugging 347 on the year, but he does have a 351 on base percentage. I, I, just, I get a kick out of that. Nine of the guy's 14 hits this season, remarkably, are extra base hits. And he hits his first home run of the season in the game on Sunday afternoon. And like I said, he also had a key defensive play. Avila in the bottom of the eighth inning with runners on first and second, one out, and the Nats leading 6-2 throughout Hoy Park in his attempt to advance to third off a Kyle Finnegan pitch getting away from Avila. Also from your Nationals weekend, Sean Nolan and Davey Martinez did get suspended. So Major League Baseball on late Friday afternoon announced that Nolan had received a five-game suspension and an undisclosed fine for, as MLB said in its press release, quote, intentionally hitting, end quote, Freddie Freeman of the Atlanta Braves. Remember Nolan plunking the Braves first baseman in a game last week, that being the 4-2 win at the Braves on Wednesday night, remember Nolan was an ad starting pitcher in that game, but only lasted for a third of an inning. Bottom of the first with Jorge Soler on first off a one-out single. Nolan first throwing behind Freeman on the first pitch of a plate appearance. Very interestingly, not receiving a warning and then hitting Freeman on his right hip with the next pitch. Nolan ejected from the game, denied after the game, having purposely thrown at Freeman. But everyone on the planet knew what Nolan was doing. This was obvious retaliation for what had happened on Tuesday night. The Nats 8-5 loss at the Braves uh, when you had the Braves closer, Will Smith, hitting Juan Soto with a pitch with one out in the top of the ninth. Soto and Smith have history. Smith throws at Soto on Tuesday night. Nolan stands up for his teammate, his ball club, 
on Wednesday night. I know it's juvenile. I know it's immature. But personally, I did not have a problem with what Sean Nolan did. Again, the Nats didn't start this. The Braves did. The Nats were just simply sticking up for themselves, sticking up for a teammate. I think those are things to be lauded. I don't think that those are things to say, well, what was he thinking doing that? Well, that's what he was thinking. He was standing up for a teammate, standing up for his team. Uh, Nolan gets suspended. Now, the MLB press release said that Nolan was appealing the suspension, but then he apparently decided not to appeal the suspension as he began serving it on Friday night. Also, MLB announced that Davey Martinez received a one-game suspension and an undisclosed fine. Davey did serve his suspension on Friday night for that uh, Nats 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates. Remember, Davey's been on crutches lately due to a recent procedure, so uh, it's not like Davey's been able to manage to full maximum capacity lately uh, anyway. But what is so galling about this whole thing is MLB administered no discipline to Will Smith. So the guy who initiated all of this gets away scot-free, and the people who responded, Sean Nolan and Davey Martinez, even if you don't think that Davey told Nolan to throw at Freddie Freeman, Davey knew what Nolan was doing, at least when Nolan did it. But those are the two guys who get suspended in all of this. That's ridiculous to me. If you're going to punish Sean Nolan and Davey Martinez, fine. I don't love it, but I can live with it. But to not do anything to the instigator, the igniter, of the entire situation to begin with Will Smith, to me, it's just absurd. And it sends a bad message from MLB. Next up for the Nats, a six-game homestand against the Miami Marlins and Colorado Rockies. Game one against the Marlins at Nationals Park, Monday night at 7.05. All right, well, you know by now, it has been a season of ugliness for the Orioles. But how about the ugliness that was on display over the course of a four-game series with the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. The O's lost three of the four games. The four games took place over the course of three days. O's did have a 6-3 win over the Blue Jays on Friday night, but then came a doubleheader sweep to the Blue Jays on Saturday, an 11-10 seven-inning loss in game one of a doubleheader, followed by an 11-2 seven-inning loss in game two of a doubleheader, and then came a 22-7 loss on Sunday afternoon. So the O's, over the course of a doubleheader sweep on Saturday, gave up 22 runs, 11 runs in each game, which was a seven-inning game. And then the O's, in a game on Sunday afternoon, a nine-inning game, gave up 22 runs. The Orioles over the course of the final three games of this series, which took place over two days, gave up 44 runs. The O's now are a major league worst, 46 and 97, with a major league worst run differential of minus 257. We'll get to some of the performances in the series in a bit, but what was the headline item by far in this series was something that happened on Friday night. Orioles manager Brandon Hyde versus Blue Jays ace and former Nationals prospect Robbie Ray. Did you follow this over the weekend? So Hyde, in that Orioles 6-3 win over the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Friday night, in the bottom of the second inning, was heard on the telecast of the game on Sportsnet in Canada, taunting and cursing at Robbie Ray. While play-by-play announcer Buck Martinez was speaking, and Buck Martinez, as many of you listening know, used to be a television analyst for the Orioles, Hyde 
was going off on Ray, who at least according to Hyde, thought that people in the Orioles dugout were talking trash. Here's the audio. You have to listen closely, but you'll hear Hyde. And while we normally have a no cursing policy on the Al Galdi podcast, I'm not going to bleep out the curse words in this cut because if I do, the cut totally loses its effectiveness. And I have to say, this is pretty hysterical what you end up hearing. The vile words coming out of the mouth of Brandon Hyde. You rarely hear this. We know that this stuff goes on, but you rarely hear this when watching a baseball game. Take a listen. Bobby Ray looking over toward the Oriole dugout for some reason. Not sure what's going on with this delay here, but Martin has stepped out of the box. Somebody, I'm not sure who. Swing and a miss. Got him with the fastball upstairs. Big strikeout, first out of the inning. That's who he's hollering at. He's hollering at Robbie Ray. This is kind of interesting. Yeah, you could say it was interesting. So if you listen to that closely, you clearly heard Brandon Hyde say to Robbie Ray, quote, pitch the effing ball. We ain't saying S. What the F you looking at? End quote. Ray then motioned at Hyde as if to say, come on the field and confront me. And Hyde said, quote, what the F you going to do? F off. End quote. And the thing with Brandon Hyde is he has this deep voice. So him saying these things stands out. Like, you know, it's him. Okay. The camera caught him saying these things. And it's just so funny to hear him talk like this. Again, we know that managers talk like this, but you know, you're so used to hearing managers uh, be all calm and be all pensive in these pre and post game press conferences. And then you hear him in action. And again, the filth, you know, the potty mouth that's on display. Uh, really was funny to me. A video of this caught fire on Twitter. This became a thing on Friday night, so much so that Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference apologized to fans, the Blue Jays, Robbie Ray, and Blue Jays manager Charlie Montoyo. He was a much more subdued and a much cleaner Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Friday night. I just wanted to reach out with, uh, I, I, I understand that there was a, I was, some of my language was picked up on a mic by our dugout. And I just wanted to, um, you know, apologize to all the fans out there, uh, the Blue Jays, Robbie Ray, uh, Charlie Montoyo. Uh, it was in a little bit of a heat of the moment. I felt like our team was being accused of something that wasn't happening. We had a lively dugout tonight and, um, but that, my language is there's no excuse for that. And, and uh, so I wanted just to apologize and, and uh, recognize that that was unprofessional on my part. All right. And that was that. I tell you what, Brandon Hyde can be feisty. We know this. Uh, Chris Davis, remember, had to be held back from going after Brandon Hyde in a dugout incident. 
that nobody likes to talk about. This happened on August 7th, 2019, during a 14-2 loss to the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Hyde has got some spunk to him, and he took it upon himself to start ripping Robbie Ray, to start challenging Robbie Ray from the dugout there on Friday night. Anyway, in terms of the actual play in this series, like I said, this was not a pretty series in many ways. We did, though, have the Austin Hayes career-best hitting streak continuing to 17 games before ending. Uh, Austin Hayes in that 11-2-7 inning loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Saturday night in Game 2 of a doubleheader, 0-3 for with a strikeout, ending that hitting streak at 17 games. But Austin Hayes was still locked in for the majority of this series. Hayes in the 6-3 win over the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Friday night extended the hitting streak to 16 games with a one-out full-count triple in the Orioles' three-run first off Robbie Ray. Also, Hayes had a single in the bottom of the fifth. Hayes in the 11-10 seven-inning loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Saturday in game one of the doubleheader had a two-out, two-run homer in the Orioles' three-run second inning to extend the hitting streak to 17 games. And Hayes had a leadoff homer in the Orioles' three-run fourth. So two home runs for Austin Hayes in game one of that doubleheader on Saturday. And Hayes in the 22-7 loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon, a one-out RBI double in an Orioles' two-run seventh inning to cut the Orioles' deficit to 22-7. Yes, uh, let that be understood. The score would not have been 22-7 if not for Austin Hayes. But Hayes has been so good lately, continue to be good throughout this series, even though, yes, the 17-game hitting streak did end. Cedric Mullins had a big series for the Orioles. Uh, Mullins in the 6-3 win over the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Friday night. Lead-off homer off Robbie Ray in an Orioles three-run first. And Mullins drew a one-out four-pitch walk and had two stolen bases in the bottom of the eighth inning. Mullins did not start game one of the doubleheader on Saturday, although he did draw a two-out pinch intentional walk in the bottom of the sixth inning, that in that 11-10 seven-inning loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Saturday and game one of the doubleheader. And then Mullins was right back at it in game two of the doubleheader, the 11-2-7 inning loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Saturday night. Mullins in that game, another home run, a leadoff homer on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the third inning. Ryan Mountcastle had a big series, played in three of the four games, went four for 14 with two home runs, two singles, and a walk. So your three most prominent position player building blocks for the O's at the major league level, all delivered in this series. Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, and Ryan Mountcastle. But like I said, this was an ugly, ugly series for the Orioles. A whole lot of runs were given up to the mighty hitting Blue Jays. And that's the thing. The Blue Jays are one of the better hitting teams in baseball. The Orioles are literally the worst pitching team in baseball. Your rebuilding and tanking Orioles have a major league worst team ERA of 593 on the season. And so, yeah, the Orioles over the course of the final three games of this series allowed 44 runs. Uh, Your starting pitcher for the 22-7 loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon was Zach Lowther. He got shelled seven runs in two innings. The O's this past Monday afternoon, Labor Day, recalled Lowther from AAA Norfolk. He had a 3-2 loss to the Kansas City Royals at Camden Yards that day allowed one run in six innings. Looked good in that game. Did not look so good in that game on Sunday afternoon. We had Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken as the Orioles' two starting pitchers in the doubleheader sweep on Saturday. Interesting that both of those guys pitch on the same day because they're two similar guys, two young Orioles who were thought to be guys who would be in the Orioles' rotation 
to begin the season. And instead, it's just been a bad season for both guys. So Dean Kramer was the starting pitcher in the 11-10 seven-inning loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Saturday in game one of the doubleheader. Uh, The O's designated Kramer as the 29th man for that day's doubleheader, and he struggled. Uh, Five runs in four innings. He gave up seven hits, three homers, three doubles, and a single. He issued a walk. He issued a wild pitch. He had just two strikeouts. The O's on June 25th optioned Kramer to AAA Norfolk. This marked his second demotion of the season as the O's had optioned him to Norfolk on May 26th and then recalled him on June 1st. Kramer in a 9-0 Orioles loss to the Blue Jays in Buffalo on June 24th had maybe the single worst outing that any Orioles pitcher has had this season. And that's saying something. Six runs, just one out. Kramer over his first 12 major league starts this season had an ERA of 725 and a whip of 161. And if you go by what happened in game one of the doubleheader on Saturday, things just haven't gotten much better. And then Keegan Aiken was the Orioles starting pitcher in the 11-2-7 inning loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Saturday night in game two of the doubleheader. His final line ended up being three runs in six innings. He began the outing, though, with six scoreless and hitless innings. Yes, he had a no-hitter going through six innings, but he then got charged with three runs in what ended up being an 11-run seventh inning for the Blue Jays. Yeah, an 11-run Seventh inning, the Blue Jays in that inning totaled 11 runs on four homers, seven singles, and two walks. Like I said, this was a very ugly weekend for the Orioles, and Keegan Aiken's rough season ends up continuing. Now, again, final line of three runs in six innings isn't, you know, wretched. And like I said, he did throw six scoreless and hitless innings, but things fell apart uh, for the Orioles as a whole. Again, the Blue Jays, an 11 run seventh inning in game two of that doubleheader on Saturday night. And then game one of this series did have a good outing from an Orioles starting pitcher. Chris Ellis was good for a second consecutive start. He and the 6-3 win over the Blue Jays at Camden Yards on Friday night. One run in five innings. Uh, Yes, and for the Orioles, uh, one run in five innings is treated like a perfect game, okay? Uh, Ellis did give up five hits, all of which were singles, did issue four walks, but he had four strikeouts, and the run prevention ultimately was there. And this is a second consecutive good outing for Chris Ellis. He had a 4-3 win at the New York Yankees the previous Saturday afternoon, September 4th, tossed five scoreless and hitless innings. Uh, the Yankees in that game didn't get their first hit in the game until there was one out in the bottom of the seventh inning. Now, Ellis did issue three walks and two wild pitches in the game, did have just two strikeouts, did throw just 53 strikes versus 39 balls on 92 pitches. He has not been dominant in either of these last two outings, but he has been effective. I mean, he added up one run in 10 innings over his last two starts. But alas, uh, the Orioles pitching is really, really bad. And man, was that on display in this series against the Blue Jays at Camden Yards over the weekend. No game for the O's on Monday. Uh, They, on Tuesday night, they get a three-game series against the Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Yes, Brandon. Thank you. We know. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 144, will feature a ton of fallout from the Washington football team's season opening 2016 loss 
to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field, including, of course, the latest on the quarterback situation, just how bad is this injury for Ryan Fitzpatrick. Ron Rivera due to be speaking on Monday via his day after the game press conference, as, of course, Washington has another game in just three days now, home to the New York Giants Thursday night at 8.20. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. That's critical. It's uh, code red for us.